have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. John 11, we, we officially launched a new series last week called Raised, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And uh, it was born out of really just this, this idea that most Christians can articulate why the cross matters, something about we get saved or something like that. But, but when it comes to the resurrection, we're, we're more uh, hesitant to really understand we know it is essential to our faith. You reject the resurrection and, and, and you know, you're not a Christian. You just, just reject the gospel. Um, but uh, the resurrection, why, why does it really, really matter? And so last week we saw that uh, with the resurrection, we find healing. And there we see the, the central truth of the gospel itself. And this week we want to see that Jesus was raised to life now and forever. John chapter 11, page 951 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you or we'll get you a nicer Bible. Main thing is have a Bible you can read with that. If you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. The beloved disciple writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him when the Jews were... Uh, with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you were you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that as we come to this text, a text I'm sure many of us are familiar with, we see it with renewed eyes, that the story is not about Lazarus, it's about Jesus. And that our hope is the same hope as Lazarus. If Christ is risen, so shall we. So as always, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that our entire being, body and soul, be transformed by the gospel. 
Give us this hope we see in this text. May I decrease so you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. Be seated. You're awake now, aren't you? In 2009, director James Cameron released what would become the highest grossing movie of all time, only surpassed later by the Avengers uh, Endgame. But for a long time, it was the highest grossing movie of all time, which is impressive in itself, but more impressive knowing that the movie he had to beat to be the highest grossing movie of all time was his own movie, The Titanic. We won't talk about The Titanic. The movie in 2009, of course, was James Cameron's Avatar, which Disney wants you to know they just released a sequel 40 years later. One of the interesting things about Avatar is that although most viewers left the uh, theater uh, entertained, media outlets started to report a different phenomenon. That is that many viewers left the theater depressed. They weren't depressed because the movie was bad. They all enjoyed the movie. In fact, they enjoyed it so much it contributed to their depression. The media coined a term for called Avatar Blues. And it was rooted in that Avatar was really the first 3D movie we take them for granted now, but Avatar is really the first one probably contributed to its popularity. And that the world that he created, this, this other world of, of Pandora, was so immersive and beauty, beautiful that, that all the, the characters lived in harmony and peace. There was no war. There was no poverty, you know, until the capitalists came, of course. But, but it, was, it was just a, a perfect world. And after about two hours of being immersed into this world, many viewers walked out the theater back into the real world. And this, this, this condition became known as Avatar Blues. And they were wondering, how is it that you can become depressed watching a movie like that? I think for the Christian, we know the answer. See, the issue isn't that you watch a movie and you think how the world could be. Or even you could watch a movie and think about how the world should be. We all know that. You turn on the news, you think things ain't the way they ought to be. But what you experience, and what I think people experienced who, who, who went through Avatar Blues, was not just as things could or should be, but rather that this is how things once was. Something within us knows we have lost, not Pandora, but paradise. And even worse, we know it's unlikely we'll ever regain it back. So we have this, 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 this uh, term, avatar blues, to, to explain this. The longing for paradise, I believe, lies deep within our bones. In fact, everything we do is in our own puny effort to recreate it. It's why we go to work. You don't do it for your health. You don't do it for your stress levels. You don't do it for any of that. You do it because you're trying to build something. You're trying to get something, you're trying to earn something. It's, 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 it's why we, we vote. It's why we love. It's why we marry. It's, it's, it's why we fight. It's, it's why we do everything we do in, in hopes that we could create for us paradise. Not just because we long for it, but because we miss it. We, we, we know we have lost it. But for the believer... Paradise was indeed lost due to our sin. But in the resurrection, 
The hope of Christianity is that one day paradise will be regained. In Revelation chapter 2, in one of the, one of the letters, the second letter to, to the uh, churches of Revelation, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see what the biblical writer is doing is he is merging both Genesis, the tree of life, and Revelation, paradise, saying that in Christ, the victorious one, he who has conquered the grave, in him we have what has been lost and what we will gain. This text shows us the hope that we have of future resurrection. Let's start here with the claim in verses 17 to 37. We won't spend forever on the, on the story. We've looked at it even in recent years in some detail. But Jesus arrives to visit Lazarus' family four days after he has been dead. If you read the first 16 verses, you know that Jesus was told Lazarus was dying pretty early on. But he chose to let Lazarus die, you know, because Jesus is all love and gooey and all that sort of stuff. But the reason Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead four days before showing up is because of Jewish belief at this time. Many Jews, at least those who believed in the soul, the Sadducees didn't, the Pharisees did. So this is a bit of a split uh, idea. But those who believed in the soul in the first century believed that the soul would hang out next to the body for up to four days. On the fourth day, the soul would leave the body. Now, you know, you're thinking that's just weird, perhaps. But in the text... You need to see that when Jesus raises Lazarus on the fourth day, there is no natural explanation for the resurrection. Jesus did what everybody knew was impossible and unscientific. Remember that the ancients knew dead bodies don't come back to life. So Jesus wanted to make sure it was very clear to everybody, not just that Lazarus was life, lifeless, but that he was dead, dead. There was no explanation beyond the, the work of Jesus. And you see Mary's words there in verse 20. It, it reflects both, both heartache and hope. So Martha, I said Mary, Martha comes in verse 20, heard that Jesus was coming. She met with him. Mary rem, uh, remained seated. Martha said, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear the heartache. Things could be better. Things should be better. I, I sent you a text about it, and, and you, you didn't respond for, for a few days. You could have fixed it. You hear the heartache. But notice the hope in verse 22. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And so Jesus gives the pronouncement here in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. Incredible statement, and not an uncommon one. You hear it at funerals. I've done a lot of funerals over the last 20 years. And the hope is that here is a believer. The hope is that, that in the resurrection, that death is not the final say. and Death doesn't have the final say. And so Jesus reassures Mary that Lazarus indeed would rise. Now, what you get in John's gospel, if we had time, we'd explore this in some detail, is that the spiritual is confused with the physical. For example, hey Nicodemus, Nick at night, you must be raised, you must be born again. Remember what old Nicky said? Dude, that's weird. Right? I can't go back in my mother's womb. Nobody can. A newborn baby can't go back into the mother's womb, right? She can't do it. Notice he's confusing the spiritual, you must of rebirth with the physical. Or 
John chapter 6, you must eat my body and drink my blood. Even modern Americans think that's weird. And that's saying something, right? But again, confusing the spiritual with the physical. Here what you're going to find is that Mary and Martha confuse the physical with the spiritual. So when, when Jesus says, don't you know Lazarus is going to rise again? They say, oh yeah, one day that'll happen. You see, they're confusing the spiritual, that one day God's going to do this incredible thing when Jesus in this one time is actually talking about the physical. No, 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 you need to understand, I will raise him from the dead. Now, Martha clearly has an amazing eschatology. She has an amazing view of the age to come. And she's comforted by the hope of the future resurrection. And that is clearly articulated in this text. But Jesus means more than this. Remember what we saw last week with the lame beggar? That when you see miraculous narratives in the Bible, those are pictures of spiritual truths. So just as the beggar was healed and that associated with salvation, so too we ought to see our story in Lazarus. As Lazarus died, so shall we. As Lazarus was raised, so shall those in faith be raised. But it is in that context Jesus gives his incredible statement in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Jesus asks. Jesus is asking Mary and Martha, but through the writer, he's, he's asking the reader, do you believe this? I want you to notice Jesus makes two important claims in this statement. It's one of the seven great I am statements of John's gospel. The first is that Jesus is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. By claiming to be the resurrection, Jesus is claiming to be the conqueror of death. Throughout history, if you ever uh, have nothing to do with your life, uh, Google this. All the incredible attempts man-made has made to avoid death. These include searching for the fountain of youth. It includes uh, magical potions. I believe there was uh, one uh, Chinese emperor who famously ate mercury. And the things he thought would give him life actually caused an early death. Uh, 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 right now we're talking about uh, uploading your mind on the cloud, whatever that means. And or uh, uh, freezing bodies so that when the technology uh, gets better, you can come back, save the brain, put it in the... I mean, we got weird ideas. But if you notice a theme here... The theme is how can we avoid death? The claim that Jesus is making here is not that Jesus avoids death. He conquers it. And we believe he conquers it by succumbing to it. It's like the hero who gets swallowed by the dragon only to, to come out victorious, right? He, 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 he slayed the, the enemy. And Jesus doesn't merely bypass it. He defeats it. What an incredible claim this is. As such, Jesus is telling Mary, and thus the reader, that death no longer has the final word. Death is a defeated villain. Death is nothing to be afraid of. Had only you been here, Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus is claiming to be the life. Jesus is the life. So not only is he the conqueror of death, but Jesus claims simultaneously that he is the giver of life. He, he conquers death he gives life. Both are related. He who conquers will raise the dead because death is no, they are no longer under death's sway. He, he, he has defeated death. Even when we succumb to physical death, he says here, we will live again. Now, 
notice in verse 27, uh, uh, Martha exercises great faith. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is John's version of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. And here it is in the context of a funeral. I believe not just in what will happen, but that by your presence, something is already happening. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And this leads to the command where Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. So verse 38 is really where uh, the, the, the climax of the story begins. Jesus orders the stone to be removed, right? And, and he is told, he is warned, right, that you don't want to do that. He's been dead for four days, and uh, he's been out in the hot Middle Eastern sun for four days. Uh, my favorite King James verse is found right here. But Lord, there is a great stinketh, right? That is my favorite King James verse. You should memorize it as well. Um, but notice Jesus' rebuke, verse 40. He says, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, what is at root of the resurrection is God's glory known among the nations for eternity. All that God does is for his own glory. And so Jesus tells Lazarus to rise. Some commentators, I think it's a bit fanciful, but I think there's something to it. They like to suggest that had Jesus not said, Lazarus, come forth, all the dead would have came out of their graves. Again, I think it's a bit fanciful, but I don't think it's wrong. Because we believe the day will come. When Jesus will call all the dead to be raised. What do we do with this? What does this have to do specifically with the resurrection and what it is we've been talking about? Well, as we said, throughout the Bible, physical miracles are manifestations of spiritual truths. They are not parables, but historical events. And as they are real to history, they are real to our faith. This is no different the Jesus that raises Lazarus will raise us. Can I give you two applications of the resurrection of Jesus as it applies in this context of life? Two things we need to note. First of all, that the resurrection gives life eternally. Eternally. When we talk about heaven, often we think of disembodied, chubby cherubs uh, with little wings that can't sustain the, the, the girth and a plan the heart on clouds. And that's sort of the way we think of heaven. We think of it as, as this, this weird vision dream state thing. That's not what you get in the Bible. The Bible roots our hope of heaven in the fact Christ is risen from the dead. You realize right now there is a man sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the anointed one, the Messiah Christ, the Son of God, the Eternal One with the Father, who succumbed to death to conquer it and was raised to life, and He gives life. That is the hope that we have. And so the message of Scripture is clear. As Christ died, so shall we. As Christ was raised, so shall we. 1 Corinthians 15, which we're looking at uh, on Sunday evenings, but in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, Paul says. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Notice that, that Christ is the first fruits, which means whatever happened to him will happen to, to, to those who follow. That's our story. 
When we look at the resurrection of Christ, we are looking at our story. Where is Christ now? What did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. So throughout the New Testament, the hope of heaven is rooted in the truth of Christ's resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring with you into his presence. You see, the resurrection is the first fruits of our hope. If Christ is risen historically, we have the hope that we will dwell in heaven with our creator, redeemer. Can I give you just two important points? We could look at a dozen. We'll look at several more this evening. Two important points in the context of our hope in the afterlife. The first is we will be with Jesus instantly. One of the great errors that, that we make, and there are a lot of Bible-believing uh, people I know who uh, I think a lot of it out of just ignorance holded this, and I want to make sure we don't do it. Too many evangelicals hold to what is known as soul sleep. That is that when a person dies, you put them to the ground, their body and their soul are just hanging out there, soul sleep, and they're waiting for a final resurrection. You're not going to find that in the Bible. I just quoted Jesus from, from the cross. Today, not eventually, today you will be with me in paradise. We believe that, that there is a temporary separation of body and soul upon death, awaiting for the final resurrection of the believer. Paul will say that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Both show us that, 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 that when we pass in faith, we are with Christ instantly. Isn't that good news? To close your eyes to death, only to open them to Christ. That's good news. Second thing we need to see here in this context is we will be embodied beings. We'll have more to say this in a couple of weeks, but this is worth mentioning here. Again, to use the stereotypes, we are not going to be chubby cherubs on the clouds with little wings playing a harp, uh, speaking Latin. That's not going to be our experience. Well, we often think of heaven as a disembodied experience, right? No, it's going to be very real. When C.S. Lewis wrote The Great Divorce, which was some experiences in the afterlife, it's an interesting book. He, he wanted the reader to grasp that, that, that the afterlife was more real than our lives here. And so the grass is more sharp than it is here. The, the light is brighter than it is here. The, the walls are stronger than it is here. He, he uses this, this, this exaggerated language that the reader would grab that, that there, the gates of heaven, is, it's real. It's very real. Why? Because we will have an embodied existence. How do we know that? Well, for one, Jesus was raised physically. We're not Jehovah Witnesses and, 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 and other heretics who believe that Jesus was raised spiritually. That's easy to buy into. I can convince you anyone was raised spiritually because I ain't got to prove nothing. Jesus is raised. He says, hey, anybody up for dinner? Right? He's raised physically from the dead. We also see this elsewhere in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's a, you ought to memorize that and meditate upon it. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is why theologians call this aspect of our salvation glorification. We are justified, justification, that is we're saved. Sanctified, the doctrine of sanctification, that is that we become like Christ. Finally, there is glorification, the day we are given resurrected bodies. Same thing in Romans Chapter 8, we can read, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Think about what heaven will be. Again, it's not a disembodied floating on the sky. We will eat and drink in community. Aren't you glad for that? And you won't gain weight, I'm convinced. Man, you know how much mac and cheese I'm having at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Tall glass of ice cold Coca-Cola minus the ice. Amen. Yeah, yeah, it's getting hot in here. All right? It's going to be good, right? Dark meat chicken, none of that white chicken stuff. It's going to be fried dark meat chicken, macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes, no vegetables. Just carbs all the way through, right? To the glory of God. I don't know how chickens die up there, but it'll be there, right? To the glory of God. We will eat and drink. Not just eat and drink, we will eat and drink together. You understand that the reason fellowship is so important for us as a church, for you as a family, for, for, for us as a community, and why COVID was so difficult that we felt like part of us was missing, is because we were meant for community. We are social beings that God created us. And the day will come, we will sit down at the table with Christ at the head, with, with, with his, his wrists still pierced, and we will say, we are here by the blood of the Lamb. Let's eat. And we don't need to pray. We'll say, thank you. And we just go eat. <laughs> we will laugh and we will rejoice as children of God. We will laugh. We will enjoy ourselves. We will sing with the choir of heavenly beings the glory of God. I mentioned this at the funeral of our fellow um, member, uh, Mr. Don Penn, that before he died, he kept asking me there at the end of COVID, uh, we got a choir yet. We're going to get our choir back. Just choir, choir, choir. And I mentioned his funeral. I said, when he closed his eyes only to open them again, he, he wasn't asking, is there a choir here? We will sing with the saints and the angels and the divine beings. It's embodied existence. It's a real existence. But if we make this text only about what awaits us in the resurrection, I think we're missing all that this text has to say to us. Notice secondly, yes, we, the resurrection gives life eternally, but the resurrection gives life now. There's a real temptation here is for you to say, well, preacher, that sounds awfully good. All the carbs and none of the weight, that sounds great. All the joy and none of the trouble, that sounds great. All the music and, and I don't have to listen to, to my kids' music anymore, that sounds great. But you're missing that this hope that we await then is yours now. It's yours now. We can live the resurrected life now. It is not enough to say, hey, just hang out. Eventually we'll get there. The good news is that the resurrection, this resurrection hope is ours now. In a very real sense, you and I are already experiencing this. This is why we're here today, isn't it? In Christ, we can and we have experienced the joy and love of paradise already. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. What does that sound like? Resurrection, crucifixion, it's the story of Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. I know what you're thinking, well, this is a comfortable pew, but it ain't the heavenly places, preacher. That's his point, isn't it? In a very real sense, you, you are right now experiencing that. 
By faith in Christ, there's the joy that we have in Christ, the hope that we await that is there, we have now. This is why we gather to worship, to sing with the angels. This is why we fellowship, to enjoy community of the saints. This is why we laugh. This is why we rejoice. This is why we do all of these things. Because it is a foreshadowing of what is to come. In the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis describes this earth as the shadowlands. Because it's a foretaste of what awaits us. This is why in John's Gospel, you, you could do a whole study. Of, we don't have time for it. I'm already behind. You could do an entire study of the word life. And what John does is he mixes the word life in the present and eternal life in the future. And you're wondering, which one is he talking about? Because in John's Gospel, the answer is yes. It's both. Let me show you. In John chapter 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, notice, life now, he gives them life, even so the Son of Man gives life to all who wishes. And then you look at the context of all that has happened in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, the woman of the whale in chapter 4, the bread of life language of feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6, right here in the middle is a teaching section in chapter 5, and he says, the Son comes to give life. And if you ask when, he'll say now and forevermore. Starts now. He goes on down to verse 24. Truly I say to you, he who, ha- who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. But when does eternal life begin? Not when our heart stops beating, but when we start repenting. That's the good news that we have here. It isn't that we're waiting for joy. We're waiting for love. We're waiting for paradise. We're waiting for peace. It's ours. That sure is a lot better than Avatar Blues. We have it already. So can I give you just a few applications under, under, under this? We'll call it a night. We'll read some C.S. Lewis and go home. Have that dark beak fried chicken, mac and cheese, mashed potatoes to the glory of God. First of all, if this is true, you and I should walk as citizens of heaven. Walk as citizens of heaven. I can understand the misery of unbelief. What source of joy, comfort, love, or peace does an unbeliever actually have? That's one of the things about when I do funerals and there's this lostness all around. I have no, no good news to give them other than if by faith you believe Jesus is alive, I have something to say. What source of comfort and peace do we really have? But for the believer, you can experience heaven on earth. Not perfect heaven, not paradise in the way we hope, but a foreshadowing of it. Because your joy, your hope, your love Your peace, your contentment is not rooted in your circumstances or your feelings. It is rooted in that Christ has conquered the grave and he gives life to all who believe him. Secondly, you should pursue the resurrected life. Here we see Colossians 3. We'll have more to say about this in coming weeks, maybe even next week. If then you have been raised with Christ, notice the present tense. Uh, it's past tense, yes, but it's, it's you have been. You are raised now. Seek the things that are above. What does that sound like? You are citizens of heaven. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You've been raised. This is in your home. You have died. You've been crucified. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears you will appear with him in glory. You see how easy Paul can mix the present resurrection with our future resurrection. Both are true. Thirdly and finally, we must live on mission. Since your future is secure, you have nothing to fear. 
God has given you a mission. Fulfill it. God has given you a purpose. Go do it. Have you noticed that the more secular we become, the more purposeless young men feel? In walks the kingdom of God. Christ is risen. Christ has called. Christ will send you. Live for his glory. Work for his kingdom. So who cares if no one likes you? You have a kingdom awaiting your arrival. Well, who cares if the world turns against you? Christ will rule this earth for an eternity. What do you have to fear? Your Savior has conquered death, and you are alive forevermore. All because Christ was risen that Easter morning. Do you mind if I read a little bit of C.S. Lewis to you? You probably thought I was joking, but I really am going to read some Narnia, a kid's book to you. The book is called The Last Battle. It's the seventh book of the Narnia series. And it is his conclusion to, to the book. So this is a, well, I'm going to make a joke, but I won't. Even after I, I made comments about how we're going to laugh. Aslan. So the Pevensey kids are in a train crash and they've died. Okay, so spoiler alert. Aslan, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? The hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is greater than the one before. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to give.